Hello, this is James and you are listening to the Generational Knowledge Podcast. I'm 21 years of age and just like a lot of folks my age, I have deep and ever-evolving questions that I want answers to. The inquiries I have serve the purpose of understanding the way of the world in order to form a meaningful perspective. I will be posing my questions from a broad range of topics to people with the knowledge, the experience and perspective to answer them. In this episode, I will be interviewing Robin Redmile Gordon, a serial entrepreneur, deep thinker and captivating writer. The knowledge I've been able to gather from my conversations with Robin has been exciting and invaluable. So much that I feel like I've only scratched the tip of the iceberg and will want to revisit a conversation with Robin in the future. I won't tease you any longer and hope you enjoy this generational knowledge transfer with Robin. And we are live. Hey, Robin, it's an honor to have you on for the second episode of the Generational Knowledge Podcast. So as you know, this podcast is a medium through which I'm seeking to extract wisdom and meaningful perspectives from all generations preceding my own. And the intel collected shall simultaneously serve as a multifaceted mentor and a hard drive for members of my generation seeking to position themselves well for the future. So yeah, that's the basis of this podcast. And um, before we get into any specific topics that I would be very interested to get into with you, I I would like to give the listeners a chance to get to know you um, and your journey from your own telling. So without further ado, if you would like to share the life that you've lived, who is Robin Redmile Gordon? Oh, well, good morning, James. And, and it's a pleasure and an honor to, to be here. And I'm, I'm, you've cited some fairly lofty ambitions there. I hope I can live up to it. And now you want me to embarrass myself by telling you about my entire life. I, I probably all <laughs> crazy somewhat, I think. Um, so I was born in 1953. Uh, very much into post-war Britain, which was a very grey and damp place uh, in every way. Um, my father had uh, served in the army. He was in the British Expeditionary Force. He was at Dunkirk with the evacuation. He then went to the Desert Rats in North Africa and then finally Monte Cassino in Italy. And not to put too fine a point on it, he, as did many, many others, came back a bit of a damaged individual. And like many others, um, he, he, he drank. Uh, he was an alcoholic without question, which kind of set the pattern for my childhood. Um, my mother was also in the war. She was an ambulance driver for the RAF. Um, but I, I like to think she gave me some of what I have inherited in that she was engaged to be married when war broke out. And when she announced that she was going to join the Women's Royal Auxiliary Corps, her fiancé told her that if she got a job, it was the end of the engagement. So she just went off and joined the wax anyway um, and drove <laughs> ambulances for the duration of the war. And good on her. 
<clears throat> Unfortunately, she made the mistake of falling in love with a hurricane pilot, um, which is a very silly thing to do in those days. And I don't think she ever got over that loss. But my parents met just after the war. Uh, I was the third of uh, the boys. There were three boys. I was the youngest. Um, my mother had three daughters. Unfortunately, she miscarried all of them. Um, and she had a pretty horrible marriage to my father from literally the honeymoon night onward. And, um, you know, it was tough. And it was 1953 and everybody was still on rations and women didn't get divorced. Women didn't go out to work. It was a very, you know, it's hard to imagine it in today's world. So she did a really good job, I think, considering she was given next to nothing by my husband, uh, her husband, to bring us up. Um, she worked uh, hard. <coughs> Um, she had three boys who gave her no thanks whatsoever for all the effort that she put in. And including yourself. Sorry, James? Including yourself? Including myself. I, I fully confess it was um, years later as an adult that I finally understood what she'd actually given us. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, it meant that I... Uh, I went off the rails, I think it would be described when I was early teens, 11, 12. Um, that was the time my parents split up. It's fairly predictable, I think, in sociology terms. Um, I ended up age 14 in an approved school. And approved schools, for the younger listeners, were a, an odd institution where parental rights were taken away from parents and transferred to the state and the state became my parents for the time of my incarceration and it's a it's a sentence if you like without end so it's up to the authorities to decide when I come home again in my case that oh, was wow. yeah wow it's um so you walk around on tippetoe hoping you're doing and saying all the right things. And then when I finally asked when I was going to get released, I was told that I was subversive and that although everything I had done and been seen to be done was uh, laudable, actually I was up to no good somewhere along the line, which was whew, probably one of the early, early parts of my disagreement with authority. Anyway, I was in for, I think it was mm -hmm. six months, um, which at that age is a heck of a long time. And I came out, um, what was I, was I 16? No, I don't think I was quite 16 when I came out. And I was uh, instructed to get a job at a beautiful, beautifully old-fashioned gentleman's clothing store in Bexhill-on-Sea, where for the princely sum of £4.17 and sixpence, I now got to wreak revenge on all the poor schoolboys coming in to be fitted out for their clothes because if there was a commission attached to that item, it didn't matter if it was three sizes too big, they would grow into it. And the commission was kind of important because £4.17 and sixpence didn't cover the rent for my bed sitting room, which was £6. So I had to sell, sell, sell. And I think it's fairly obvious that that's where I got my, my bug for... Um, earning a crust as opposed to being paid a wage and also mm -hmm. for coping with customers and 
understanding what customer service was. And that's really been what I've tried to promote throughout my business life. Um, customer service is something which today is almost invisible and very difficult to find. Yeah. But there have been times during my life when there has been really wonderful customer service and I've certainly prided myself in delivering. So in short order, I went into business for myself. I started in plumbing. I moved into uh, related things until eventually my, my then wife, we had just married, um, spotted a shop and a village shop uh, and a flat above that was available for rent for two pounds a week for the remaining two years of a 21 year lease. And even in those days, two pounds a week was a remarkably cheap <laughs> place to live. So we moved from Bexhill yeah. to Forest Row and um, I was not intending to become a grocer. I thought this will be something nice that Paula can do for my first one um, while I'm out working. And it just very quickly snowballed. Forest Row is an unusual place, has a lot of, some people would call them cults, other people would call them, I don't know, religions, uh, movements, etc. The uh, Steiner School, the Steiner School, there's uh, Steiner College, um, what's it called? Michael Hall School and I can't remember the college name now. And then the Scientologists were just down the road and lots of other people of similar sort of explorative bent and a lot of people from abroad, Europe and America. So consequently, they had demands for very different food from your average village store. And we started stocking whatever it mm -hmm. was they were asking for. And that became fascinating. And at that point, I. I got to the point of saying, well, I, I can't do the work anymore. I'll stick with this because this looks like it has legs. And it did. And we grew the store very rapidly. Um, I used to use Tesco's back in those days as my, my marker of how well we were doing because I was looking to be at least four times better per square foot revenue-wise than they were. So they were very handy okay. for me. So then we bought two more stores. They were bigger. Um, it was more extravagant. It was less health food oriented and more luxury food oriented. We were dubbed by Country Life as the country gentleman's Fortnum and Mason, which I thought was not a bad accolade at the time. And I think by this stage, I was what, um, 25, something like that, 26. And then okay. we made a mistake. I made a mistake. What am I saying? We, I made a mistake. Um, I decided to branch out into hampers, promotional hampers for companies. And this was in 1981 stroke two, which was the worst recession that I've lived through in this country, worse than the nineties recession. And just as we had got off to a great start, order books were filled, warehouse was filled, and then the crunch came, redundancies started happening everywhere, companies were going bankrupt, people were going bankrupt, and the cancellations started to flow in. And that was the point where I had to make a fairly radical change 
sold the stores quickly. And then because of the work I'd done on the hampers and the work that preceded with the food stores, I had got interested in export and import. And so I moved into that area, especially with foodstuffs. Next, we segued into an air freight agency. The next thing I know, I'm flying on cargo aircraft backwards and forwards to Africa. We start growing wow. things in Africa. Um, we're shipping the products back over here. We were the first, I, I keep saying we. It's me, natural mode. But anyway, let's stick with we. Mm-hmm. We're the first to bring air-flown pineapples back into the UK. Everything came by shipping containers from the Ivory Coast, and they were disgusting and horrible, like cannonballs. And we grew them in Uganda, we flew them in, and we had Harrods as our top-tier customer, and we couldn't bring them in. We couldn't bring enough in fast enough, frankly. That was the different, the difficulty of trying to remotely farm from here in a place like Africa. Uh, lack of cold, cold storage, um, infrequent flights, air, air flight cancellations, all of these things. But it was a great bounce um, springboard, was the word. I was going to say bouncing board. Trouble with getting old. Great springboard. <laughs> and from that, the air freight, shipping, warehousing, um, distribution, all of those things flowed. And including even car wow. rental might seem odd but a friend was selling his Rolls Royce that I wanted and he insisted that if I bought the Rolls Royce I had to buy the car rental company that went with it and I thought it would be useful because I had heaven knows how many company cars on lease for other people so why not do it through my own company and that's how I ended up getting into car rental weirdly so when oh, wow. and mid 80s mid to late 80s I find myself being, how should we say, let down by people very close to me. Then I decided to get out of everything. So literally sell, 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 close, sell, close. And I found myself left with a little car rental company. And that was rebirth number, I don't know, 36 by that stage, I think. Shall I stop at that point? Because it could go on for quite a while. You can go on. I, I've I've loads of questions building up already just on that, but please move on. So with the car rental thing, I think by the time I got rid of all the companies, I no longer needed the company cars. So I've got a car rental company, which I think had six cars at the time. And it was really a case of, okay, so what do I do with this, given it's the only thing I've got left? And I'd always wanted to have a product that was suited for radio advertising, which in those days was incredibly effective. I, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I remember one time getting off the train at Victoria and, and it was the usual thing. I was in a rush. I had no concept that it was the middle of winter and it's freezing cold. And I was standing outside Victoria station, just in a suit. I need a coat. And I called the cab over to the curb and I leaned in the window and I said, can you take me to the big red building on Petticoat Lane? Because there'd been a radio advert on, I think it was Capital, for years, which was a leather and sheepskin place. And he knew exactly okay. what he was talking about, took me straight there. I ended up with a lovely thick sheepskin coat and I was set for the day. And from that day on, I thought, you know, 
I need a product that I can sell on the radio like that. And so we started offering short-term leases. So four and six months of brand new vehicles on a weekly basis, which because it was the uh, 80s, uh, so a recession had just been recovered from, lots of new companies springing up, lots of salesmen, all of whom needed cars. None of these companies had a great track record, so lease finance was difficult for them. The difference was I only needed them to pay my bills for four months, three of which were up front. So I just needed to get one payment off them in order to get paid. And therefore the credit risk was good. We put it out on the radio and it was just amazing. The response was phenomenal. We grew it to several hundred cars. Then we took on a national franchise, a rental franchise. That was then for Gatwick Airport. Then we took on the one for Heathrow Airport. Then our franchisor went bust. And I'm sitting there with the two largest rental locations in the thrifty franchise and no franchisor. <clears throat> so together with um, another guy, we put together a brand new company, flew over to America, got a new franchise awarded, set the new company up, and that went brilliantly. In fact, um, my colleague sold the company not once but twice. I was paid out the first time around. Um, he then bought it back again and then sold okay. it out probably more money. Good on him. Um, that was me, car rental. Unfortunately, during that same period, I was bankrupted. That's an entire episode. We won't go there. Um, but I was bankrupted in absentia, which apparently doesn't happen. And um, so I had to literally hand back my franchises because of the typical insolvency clause. Um, and then it was a case of what do I do now? And I got a phone call from my former colleague who said, Robin, we need a an automation system to run the rental business. If you're not doing anything, would you be interested in taking on the project? So that's what I did. Ended up um, setting up the European operations of a US company. And for the next 20 something years, that was what I did. Market car rental software around the globe. And then eventually we bought the US company and we bought the third arm, which was a company in Australia. So we had a global operation headquartered here in the UK, merged everything together, which was an incredibly painful and tedious process, and then sold it. And now I'm retired. There you go. Wow. And when was the, when did you sell? Um, four years ago. So okay. Wow. Okay. So not that long ago. No, I think. Good time to sell probably. Well, yes, no, it was, um, it was of its time. I needed by that stage, I, I needed to be out of it. And, and I didn't have anybody, your father would love me for this. I hadn't the succession arrangement in place to have somebody at my elbow who would take it over from me and do what was required. So selling was the right thing to do. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I, you know, no regrets there. It was, it was a fun ride. It was exciting. I learned a great deal. And now I do my garden. Oh, and I'm in the middle of a building project at the moment as well, which 
is another story. But yeah, so there we are. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating entrepreneurial life that you've lived so far. And very, it must have been very, very stressful, especially with, first of all, when you were let down by, was it colleagues or friends? Uh-huh, colleague partners, yeah. And had to restart. And then after your uh, bankruptcy by absentia, you had to restart after that again. Um, what, what would you say are the keys to successfully starting from scratch again? after riding on a high already and having that much business experience like i'd say nine i'd say 90 percent of people would drop the ball after that and say oh okay i've still got skills still got a bit of money and i have some experience so i'll collect a wage now what was what are, what are the keys to restarting from scratch successfully i think it's that old nugget uh, called necessity so the life that I have lived as a, a self-employed entrepreneur means that I'm in complete control of my every waking moment, subject to accommodating all the demands that come from that. But I, I'm my own boss. I'm, I'm probably quite early in that process virtually unemployable because of that very thing. Yeah. Why am I going to respect the decisions of all these other people when I've spent my entire life trusting no one but myself? Consulting, but trusting no one but myself. Yeah. And, and when I have trusted, I touched on it earlier, trust is a frequently a one-way street, and that's a concern. So if I wanted to maintain an income, and preferably an income that I had been used to, which has been in, in my terms luxurious in the sense that except when those moments have happened I've never had to worry about where the next meal was coming from or whether I could afford something I was never extravagant or ostentatious so my the things I needed to afford weren't outrageous but I have had that mm -hmm. luxury of never having to worry about those things when those crunches come and you face the reality of if you go from this to an employed situation in a job you're probably going to hate, the change of lifestyle, apart from anything else, is massive. And so do you do? You pick yourself up and dust yourself off and figure out what you're going to do next. I think it should also be said that there is a massive issue of self-respect in there. Uh, am I going to allow myself to fail? Mm, not if I can help it. So I, I regard that as self-respect. Other people might have a different word for it. But it, it's, for me, it's a permanent competition with myself that I have to succeed in what I do. It's not to show other people. It's literally just for my benefit. I think they call it okay. another way. Mm -hmm. So that kind of covers what goes on, let's say, on the inside um, mm -hmm. when you have to restart something successfully. But what about the actual kind of 
physical aspects of it or the organizational aspects of actually figuring out, okay, what is my next plan? How am I going to go about it? How am I going to get the capital from it? So you said you had a, a certain, you were used to a certain standard of living already. Yep. Um, where did that standard of living start for you? Because um, obviously you started off with plumbing, which I also have a question. So did you do a plumbing apprenticeship or did were you just very good at that? I, um, I had worked with a group of friends um, who are still friends to this day when we, we were teenagers together, uh, building swimming pools for mm-hmm. the father of one of those friends. And I had sort of encountered plumbing along the way, as, as strongly as I can put it. So when I decided to strike out on my own, I put an advert in the local paper. And the very first job I got uh, a call on was, would I like to come and look at this lovely house, which is on the swanky end of the town I lived in, Bexhill, um, because they'd like to fit a new bathroom. So bold as brass, aged 17, something like that. Okay, I yeah. rocked up tried to sound authoritative, stroked my chin as I looked around their bathroom and said, yes, uh, be absolutely no trouble at all. I'll, I'll come back to you this afternoon with a quote, which I duly did. I think I more or less plucked the figure out of the sky. And had <laughs> on for safety. And they said, yes. I mean, what can you do when you've got something like that handed to you on a plate? So they announced that they were going away for the weekend and I said, well, that's fine, because then I can come in and do it at the weekend and that way not disturb you, because you won't be needing your bathroom. And that week before the weekend came, I went down to the library, took out some books on plumbing, worked out what tools I needed. I had got a deposit off them. Then popped down to the local ironmongers, got myself a plumber's bag, that classic old-fashioned plumber's bag, filled it up with the tools that I thought I needed, and turned up as they handed over the keys to me on the Friday afternoon. And I sat in the bathroom for the weekend. I ate and drank in their their bathroom. And they arrived back on Monday and I handed the bathroom over to them. And the amazing thing is, it worked. It didn't leak. It looked really good, to be honest. And I was quite proud of myself. So I thought, okay, I can do it. We do plumbing. And by the way, it was very profitable. So there you are. What do you do? How do I go from plumbing to something else? Well, you know, it's again, it's necessity. And I, I, I fear that, that I could be criticised for having done that in the first place, because what if it had gone badly wrong and I had taken somebody's money or I wrecked the bathroom um, or, or, or damaged the house by a burst pipe? Yeah, I get all of that. And that's where the necessity and the self-respect comes in because I'm not about to let that happen because I wouldn't be able to deal with it very well, let alone them. So it requires um, an an excess of confidence probably. Um, But it's been fun. It's been the same with everything I've ever done. And the most common thing I've ever heard people say is, well, oh, you can't do this job unless you've been doing it for 20 years. You just can't understand it. 
that, I mean, it's like every single business I ever That's went the world we live in now. Say again. That's the world we kind of live in now. You need a degree or some kind of paper to give the person you're you're doing a job for the security that you're kind of, kind of, it's kind of like the whole science thing as well that you're an expert at what exactly. you're doing. Exactly, James. I'm. I don't want a brain surgeon on me that hasn't been thoroughly trained. I, I don't want a rocket scientist putting rockets in the sky unless they're thoroughly trained. But the vast majority of human pursuits on this planet are entirely <laughs> learnable by intelligent, semi-educated human beings. They're really quite Absolutely. And I, and I, it's one of my, you may know from a previous conversation, one of my pet issues with the whole push for everybody to go into university regardless of ability or interest or or, or aspiration what i really <laughs> respect are the people that are able to make things craft things do all the stuff that we all enjoy even if it comes down to mending electricity cables 100 feet up above a mountain pass in a in a howling gale that's a skill that none of us can even dream of existing without but none of us would want to go and do it so those people in my book i i hold in very high esteem yeah yeah i have to say it's fascinating that just do it um attitude that obviously you had um with your first plum plumbing job that's i'd say i think that's a pattern that goes through and through with every entrepreneur um, that they take that risk at the beginning. And I think yeah. it's fascinating to hear a similar story every time with uh, like-minded entrepreneurs like yourself who just kind of just, I don't know, not you can't call it fake it till you make it, but it's kind of a sophisticated faking it till you make it approach it, it, with a lot of and Yeah. And you have to, yeah. without question, the risk-taking aspect is essential to any entrepreneurial enterprise. Obviously, you try to manage those risks. You try to reduce them where you can, but there's always risk. And you're always the person that's at risk in those situations. It's also why, uh, well, I, I like to excuse myself on this basis. I've been married three times now. Um, and a common thread that I come across is entrepreneurs frequently find it very difficult to retain a marriage and family whilst they're going through these processes. Because let's face it, yeah. most wives who are dependent on their husbands to look after the family are not so keen on risk <laughs> as their husbands. So, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it eats away at their security yeah. and it's quite understandable that they're uncomfortable with it. But you know, it's, what do you say? Do you say if you're an entrepreneur, you remain single for most of your adult life? I don't think so. I think it's, some people are lucky. They do meet the right partner who can run with them on that. Um, that I think the greatest sin is actually working with your partner in that environment. That's, I, I've not seen one of those ever work. Yeah. This level is just too huge. It's just, you know, 24 seven, in each other's companies, suffering every hammer blow that comes along. No, mm. you need the, the separation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I see that. And um, 
I'm not sure who said this to me. It might have even been my dad, but um, he said that going into a business partnership is a bigger decision than marrying someone. I completely agree. I completely agree. And rather like your dad, rather like having been burned in experiences in the past, uh, and I, I do speak to a lot of younger people who are going into business, and I constantly see the temptation to create partnerships, and I make it my life's work to talk to them very seriously about those arrangements because I've had a few of them, and they can be made to work, but the understanding at the outset, the very thorough legal documentation of that understanding, uh, these things are really important. And even if you have that understanding at the beginning, time has an amazing way of working strange impacts on, on different people's understanding of what they thought they understood at a previous point in time. So, um, yeah, could it be money and power corrupt? I don't know. But I do know that partnerships are are difficult, especially the worst of all, equal partnerships. Equal partnerships? Yeah, because equal so partnerships pass. In the event of a disagreement, nothing can happen. So, ah, okay, so there's no authoritative figure in that partnership. You either need um, acceptance at the beginning that one partner is the more senior of the two, or you need at least a third party who also has skin in the game, who can be the arbiter, the negotiator, the common sense guy, and everybody agrees that that his voice is heard. So it's <laughs> it's not to be entered into lightly, and and far too often these things are entered into lightly, and the regret only comes when it's successful. And then the fights start. It's a little bit like when people die, suddenly families start ripping each other apart over the inheritance. Mm, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a that's a common pattern. Afraid so. Um, that's, that's quite interesting to hear because I have a very good friend of mine um, and I were both, we're both very entrepreneurial uh, in our approach to life and in, in our mind. His name is Domi. And um, we constantly kind of whip up these business ideas to each other and draw business plans. And he's studying engineering. Um, and I'm obviously doing something completely different. Um, but we constantly get back to the point where we say, we say to ourselves, well, do we really want to go into business together? Because our friendship is so amazing. Um, and, we, we constantly say to you though, we, we would prefer to stay friends for life and go off on our own business endeavors, but we'd also be really excited to start something together at some point um, once we're ready, which would probably be in like two years, um, give or take. And yeah, so what would your advice for that specific um, relationship be? Well, I, I think you're both very sensible and right to be concerned that it could impact your friendship because uh, I've come across many such situations where people have been firm friends, gone into business, tensions within the business develop and the friendship is put under strain and ultimately it turns even more nasty. That's the trouble. 
So I think there are ways of agreeing that there is some mechanism for arbitration. Now, one of the obvious ones is, number one, always have a shareholders agreement, an agreement that you've sat down together with a lawyer who knows what he's doing, or somebody that's competent in business and has, if you like, templates of previous shareholders agreement, that kind of thing. It's a really complex area. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when the doodah hits the fan, the shareholders agreement is almost everything, apart from the Companies Act or whatever other legislation. Yeah. You want. But the shareholders agreement is critical. Now, within that shareholders agreement, you can bring other people in if you give them one share so they have a vote. It's enough to tip the balance to one side or the other, subject to how the shareholders agreement has been written. There are certain legal things okay. with 75% of shares. That gets complicated, especially when it's in conflict with your shareholders agreement. So these are the, the things that nobody ever thinks of when they're setting up a business, except once they've been burned in a prior life. Because right now, the excitement that's generated around the idea and the enthusiasm, everything is just pushed to one side. And the focus is all how do we do this? Where do we get the money? How do we start selling mm. those things? Great. That's exactly the motivation. Without selling. Exactly. You yeah. need a cool hand in the background that's saying, this is all great, guys, but we need to set the foundations in place. We need a shareholders agreement. We need to understand mm. what's going to happen if and when there's a disagreement. Um, and it may well be that you choose uh, not relatives, preferably, but you choose respected third parties, an accountant, if you have an established one, or a solicitor, or someone that you feel you can trust, <clears throat> and make them chairman, and give them a casting vote, something, anything, okay. yeah. you just have to recognize, James, and here's the rub, you are now surrendering your sovereignty to that third party, and that is not always a comfortable situation. So sometimes you might just say, how about we agree that I have 51% and you have 49? Are you willing to accept my decision in the event that it comes down to a make or break um, difference of opinion? Because if you can yeah. agree that, it, it makes life really simple. Yeah. Yeah. Will your partner surrender? So basically, the advice would be to get a business version of a prenup. Yeah, exactly that. It's exactly that. Okay, and, fair. And with luck, you never ever look at that document again until and unless something goes badly wrong. So mm -hmm. just like the prenup. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, it makes absolute sense because shit's always going to hit the fan at some point. Um, and if you don't have a set of rules that you agreed upon before shit hit the fan, I, it, it makes everything impossible. I, I'll give you a, a very quick, simplified example. I had a situation back in the early 80s when I had a partnership. It was 50-50, my mistake. Uh, and I'd already been burned once by this stage, so I should have known better. Um, and my partner that's, somebody sent me a fax apparently um my partner 
Um, they still do. <laughs> well, I just plug the old telephone line into a fax machine just to get rid of it. But if somebody's ringing it, I don't know. Um, yes, so he did something really stupid, put the company into an incredibly dangerous situation, um, which remarkably involved the safety of the president of Uganda. We, we'll save that for another time. And I wanted yeah. to a shareholders meeting to resolve this. And I found myself in the 50-50 problem that I could not insist that we had a meeting now. I had to give 21 days notice of the meeting because I would need 75 Companies Act, 75% in order to um, be able to call the meeting without giving notice. So there was no way this situation could carry on for 21 days. So I did what sometimes has to be done and I just did what I had to do and didn't care about doing it correctly. And luckily was never challenged mm -hmm. for that. But if I hadn't done it, uh, well, apart from my own existence and the business, certain people's lives were on the line. So it was going to get done. But it was a perfect example of where somebody can just say, I am not going to agree to this and everything is just stuck in the mire you can't go forward you can't go backward nothing can happen it's yeah it's an intriguing situation but once bitten twice three times four times shy yeah um you said the details of the story um that you'd keep them for another time but okay would you would you be interested in telling it anyway because yeah, it sounds sure. very interesting did you say it involved the the personal safety of the president of uganda it did. Um, so in this business, amongst other things, we held the uh, an agency with Uganda Airlines. So we were responsible for um, getting the freight onto the aircraft, for selling the freight capacity. Uh, and this, this was your export, import business, right? Yes. Yeah. So all we're doing, this was... Okay. Although I was using that capacity for my export-import business, in this role, we're literally just selling the space on the flight um, to other cargo agents. So effectively acting as a, a broker stroke agent, selling Uganda Airlines capacity okay. to other freight agents. But um, alongside okay. that, because we had close relationships with those people we also had the contract for handling an outfit called uganda air cargo and uganda air cargo owned uh, one hercules c-130 uh, and they had oh yes under their auspices was the president's jet the private jet uganda air cargo was a division of the ministry of defense in uganda and so we we, we had these acquaintances with all these people, but more than that, when they needed to send aircraft parts back to the UK for repair, recalibration, all of the things you have to do with an aircraft, we would handle that, we'd take it to the repairers, we would pay the repairers because cash is the name of the game in this business with a country, dare I say, a third world country with a rather iffy reputation. And so, yeah, well, it is. When we, the sorts of things that we would handle would be a thing called the inertia navigation system. It's like a, 
big black box, which is what controls the whole navigation element of the aircraft. That would be sent back. It had to be recalibrated. I think it was probably twice a year, certainly once a year. And we'd send it up to a, an outfit in, in Middlesex. And the bill was usually, this is early 80s, the bill was usually 20, 25, 30,000 pounds, dollars, depending what the individual transaction was. And then we would we'd bill our clients back for that. Well, we received uh, the INS unit for the president's jet. And we sent it up and they wanted X amount of money. We were owed money by Uganda Air Cargo, which had been outstanding a long time. We put some pressure on them by saying, we can't get this one out until you send us some money. And during that period of time, I had to go on a trip down to Uganda for about two weeks. And the second INS unit for the president's jet went on the blink. So they're now quite desperate for the one that was um, being held in repair. They sent the money over for it. The money came into the account. We didn't actually need it because we had the cash to pay. We were just using this as a device to make sure the money kept <coughs> rather than have the mower's money. And yeah. my colleague decided that he would pay every bill that the company had. I mean, like, bang up to date. No credit terms whatsoever. If there was a bill on the books, he paid it. So he spent every penny that was in the bank account. Now I've got the president's jet due to fly to Moscow, as I recall. Um, was I in Moscow or Rome? Yeah, he was very friendly. This is um, Abote. He was very friendly with the Russians at the time. And they haven't got a working INS unit. So I arranged with them that they would fly the president's jet to London with no INS. And I would get back home, get hold of the INS unit and deliver it to the captain that was flying the aircraft so that before he had to go on to his final destination and then back to Uganda, it's the back to Uganda part that's the difficult bit, he would have an INS unit. And I flew back, I get here and I discover there's no money in the bank to go and get this unit out. So I had to rustle up the money myself, which I literally, it was a case of beg borrowing and stealing rustled the money up, paid, got the unit out. And none of that took place until after they could depart because it took two, three days to get that sorted. So I sat down in a Parkland hotel with the captain of the president's private jet trying to explain this situation to him. And he explained to me, Robin, I can get from here to, uh, I, I'm sure it was Moscow he was going to, my problem is that when I leave here from Moscow, the time of the flight, there will be no navigation beacons for me to follow flying over Africa. So I'm literally flying by compass and sight in the pitch dark. There was nothing I could do. Uh, we, the, the tricky bit was he couldn't tell the president because if he told the president, he'd have to confess that he just flew from Entebbe to London with no navigation system, which anybody would assume was endangering the president's life. 
So it was a really complicated juggling exercise of trying to deal with the technical thing of getting the unit, the financial thing of finding the money, and at the same time yeah. trying to uh, try to trying to soothe this poor frazzled captain who quite literally would be facing a firing squad if any of that information came out. Yeah, and so you had someone else's life in your hands as well. Exactly. And it was literally wow. when that was all put to bed and finally we got the unit, we've sent it out to him. And again, he had to fly back without it, but we got the unit out to him back in Entebbe so that he was now able to work properly. And that's when I tried to call the meeting with him to say, this, this can't be done. The idea of, of having a partner who could be so crass and create such a problem, which I then have to go and find the funding to bail out. So there yeah. we are. It was um, my partner. It was. It's funny. He. It, it's sort of cruel. My partner Paul. He was about twenty-four stone, huge, big, round. He looked like those sort of um, toys that budgerigars have that are weighted at the bottom so they can't fall over. And his name was <laughs> Newman. And when he answered the phone, he really thought he was something with the ladies. And he would say, yep, my name's Paul Newman, blonde hair, blue eyes. That's where the, that's where the appearance stops, he would say. And we used to think, thank heavens, there are no such thing as video phones these days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being cruel, but you know, it's wow, what a story. Yeah. Hey, ho. So you were obviously on the ground um, a lot with the export import business. Were you encountering, like, would you be factoring in corruption into your business uh, expenses as well? Totally. Um, within, yeah. In Uganda, well, within anywhere in Africa. Um, not to mention the Middle East. Yes, it was. Let me put it this way. Absolutely nothing took place without it involving corruption. But yeah. it's different. It's very different. So in Uganda, for example, these numbers might be slightly off, but they're not very far off. In Uganda, the average salary for somebody was something in the order of 2,000 Ugandan shillings a month. I'm talking a civil servant, a bank clerk, that kind of person. Yeah. The black market rate for Ugandan shillings was 6,000 to the pound. And the official rate in those days was about 60 to the pound. Obviously, once upon a time, it started at 20. So if the black market rate for a pound is 6,000 shillings. That's the rate that I got when I bought some shillings from somebody and gave them a pound note. If I went to the bank, they'd have given me 60. So here you've got a bank clerk or a civil servant earning 2,000 shillings, or put it another way, 30 pence for a month work. And if he wants to buy a bag of sugar, that's 500 shillings. If he wants a beer, wow another oh five shillings. I mean, he, it is totally and utterly impossible for them to exist on their salary. And so yeah. they get creative and necessity again. 
So anything that needs doing, literally anything, needs um, needs the wheels greasing for it to take place. If you wanted a document, I mean, we did teach bureaucracy in Africa really, really well. They took it very much to heart. So documents and rubber stamps were um, items of power and money. So if I had yeah. a call from the highest person <clears throat> organization for something I still had to go down to the ground floor and get each person to validate this document sign it stamp it pass it on to the next guy and every single one of those has his hand out now you've got two choices you can say no I refuse to participate in this because it's corrupt and you'll get absolutely nothing done uh, mm -hmm. or you can say you know what the guy's earning 2,000 shillings a month how could I possibly feed a family on that? So the interesting thing is that that means there is enough money in the economy if we bring the black economy into the white economy and mix it all together for everybody to make a living. It's just the route yeah. by which it travels that's wrong. The, the rule I had was uh, I would never mess on my own doorstep. So within my own country, I would never, ever get involved in anything that required a backhander of any kind. Intriguingly, I started out believing that that doesn't happen in this country. I, I, I honestly <laughs> to accept how naive I was, but I really did. I really did think this was, you know, I, I guess I bought the line from being brought up as a child, you know, we're British, you know, we do everything by the book. Uh, it's honest. And then... I mean, didn't you say you were in a government-approved school? <laughs> Indeed. The, um, uh, it was approved by the Queen, I'll have you know, not, not the government. Um, uh, okay. The, uh, there was a... I can say these things because it's established fact. There was a, a, a an Asian businessman in Uganda called Abdul Shamji. And when Idi Amin threw all the Asians out of uh, Uganda, uh, Shamji was a, yeah. a, a um, what would you call them? He, almost the Ugandan equivalent of an oligarch. He was a, uh, into various heavy industries, steel, um, uh, building, construction, machines, all this kind of stuff, and, and everything you can think of in between. And so theoretically, he left Uganda penniless and arrived here in the UK. And within no time at all, like a couple of years, this is a fellow who has bought Wembley Stadium, uh, the Garrick Theatre, the Lyric Theatre, uh, I can't remember the others. There's certainly a couple of others. He had offices on Park Lane. He was a regular visitor with Mrs. T at number 10 Downing Street. And, okay. then, uh, and there was a fellow at the time called Colin Sedgemore, a Labour MP, who would day after day stand up on the floor of the Commons and denounce the corruption between Margaret Thatcher the Tory government of the day and Abdul Shandy, but under parliamentary privilege. 
and I, I used to listen to this because this is all very topical for me and, and Abdul Shandu was a well-known character and, and I did business with them here and there. And it dawned on me that because we have an establishment that believes that everybody understands how the system works and yes, the corruption exists on a huge scale by comparison to a little place like Uganda, but it's very well controlled and it's not talked about. In Uganda, it's open. You can, I can remember headlines that basically said, President signed a lovely deal today, pocketed a million dollars. You know, it wasn't quite that explicit, okay. but it close. Whereas here, the mere suggestion of, I don't know, a free cake for a prime minister and it's corruption and, and terrible. I mean, the fellow at the moment, Zahawi, who's being vilified because well, he was a bit late paying his taxes and paid a penalty. I mean, that's what we allow out into the public domain. What's going on under the covers is just huge. So he comes along, wheedles his way in because nobody's expecting it, whereas he is... Everything he ever built was on the back of Grant. So the unsuspecting British establishment was sort of caught unawares. I, I had weird and wonderful connections to him that I didn't know. One was through one of my lawyers, who it turns out, um, he owned a property on the Isle of Sark. I mean, the guy owned everything. It was just crazy. He had government contracts for defence vehicles, all sorts. And my wow. my lawyer of the day, lovely, lovely guy, um, actually had to go out in a fishing boat and um, beach the fishing boat on the Isle of Sark. And this is at the dead of night and walk wait through the waves and up the beach to go to visit Abdul Shamji to do the business he had to do because secrecy was all. I mean, it was a, an incredible world. And then through something completely and utterly unconnected, I thought, I ended up getting quite well acquainted with a, a detective sergeant in the fraud squad in London. And I was up talking to him about a completely different problem. And somehow Abdul Shamji's name came up and he said, Robin, come with me. And he called me into a different room. And the walls of this room were papered with the names of different companies and entities and people with bits of ribbon tying one to the other to indicate the various links. He had been investigating Abdul Shamji and all the various connections. And this is because CCI collapsed and Abdul Shamji was one of the two people largely responsible for the bankruptcy of BCCI because once again he had been getting multi-million dollar loans out of BCCI and it did it so cheaply just like Uganda all he had to do was provide prostitutes for bank clerks or a nice night wow. out or a day at the races and the loans just kept flowing there was him there was another guy I think it was a Pakistani guy can't remember his, his name, but that's what brought BCCI down. And it was the BCCI connection that put me in touch with Nigel Lane, the DS. 
it's amazing how some names come back to you. Lovely guy. And yeah, it was a massive criminal enterprise at the end. Okay, wow. So would you say, um, let's say comparing the West to um, third world country corruption, would you say that the corruption in the West happens in the higher echelons and is protected by some sort of an establishment media slash um, government system or or would you say it's just not talked about? Um, I, I think in the West uh, there is a kind of establishment understanding. I don't, I can't get my head around the idea that there's a mechanism or a group of people in smoke-filled rooms or anything of the sort. It's much more <laughs> the same thing that flows through public school, the various societies that we have, the nudge, nudge, wink, wink arrangements. And, okay, yeah. and you see it very much with politicians obviously with people in business because people in business i think look at it very differently they're there to make money if they're doing a deal with a friend in another company we're not talking about backhanders as such but we are talking about doing deals with friends and friends being looked after uh, as one would say and it's it is not talked about and people know that you don't talk about it it's it's only when somebody comes in that hasn't been steeped in that understanding that then finds they, they're upset about something, they want to talk out of line, go to a newspaper, go to the legal system, uh, and that's when you see things happening very quickly to quickly close the door on the whole thing. Oh, okay. I understand. You know, I have to be honest, though, in this country, I mean, I, I do... When I hear people baying for the blood of politicians, and I've got no love for politicians, where they're talking about corruption, and you just know that the vast majority of people offered, let's say, to do a gardening job or a build a conservatory, any sort of building work, that kind of thing, well, I don't have to charge VAT if you can pay me cash. I mean, very few people yeah, yeah. resist that kind of an offer. And and what we have there are two parties who are te technically defrauding the government, the person doing the work and the person having the work done for them. There's the old one of um, things bought down the pub. It's less common these days, but... The number of times people have bought something off somebody down the pub, things that fell off the back of lorries, these are things that run right the way through the echelons of society. They're not, they're, they're definitely not the kind of things the elites are getting involved in. It's way too small beer. But, yeah, you know, we all have it in us, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, pot calling the kettle black to have people baying for the blood of politicians. My problem with politicians is, of course, that they are the ones that sit there and write the laws that the rest of us are supposed to obey. That's the difference. And, yeah. and I think that carries a huge responsibility. Of course it does. And mostly those actors act in a manner 
that you could describe in uh, laws for thee and not for me? I mean, we Absolutely. saw that during COVID. Absolutely. Oh, did we just? Yeah. 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 I mean, there we got the theater show, the obvious, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Well, even the one recently with Rishi Sunak not wearing a seatbelt. Do I care whether he's wearing a seatbelt or not? Not really. But the fact is that I could be stopped tomorrow because I never wear a seatbelt in the back of a car. Um, and, And I would be fine and he wouldn't. And that's where people get upset. And I think understandably. Yeah. Of course. And Robin, would you be fine with taking a 60 second bathroom break? Absolutely. Go for it. If you make it it. like 120, I'm going to fill my teacup at the same time. Sounds good. I'll pause the recording now. You're on. Cool. See you in a sec. We'll do. Okay. And we're back. Um, Okay. So we've talked loads about entrepreneurship now. um, And I would like to kind of cap it off with um, a question or a couple of questions. I'm basically asking you, how do you think the entrepreneurial landscape for young people like myself, like my friend, I have loads of friends who actually dream of building up their own business and being their own boss. Um, how do you how do you feel? Do you feel that the environment has changed since you started your first business endeavor with the plumbing? And if so, how? Uh, I think in terms of how I started plumbing, whatever it might be, a practical skill. No, I don't think that's changed at all. And the great thing there is that I would love to see schools encouraging entrepreneurship in their pupils. So that apart from going out and signing on and going through the traditional route of let's hope somebody gives me a job, a lot more people created their own jobs and went out and started entrepreneurial businesses of their own. I don't care whether they're window cleaners, car mechanics, whatever. We need more of them. In terms of starting uh, a more complicated business, things are very different and it is more difficult. And the difficulties mainly are around regulation, controls in forms of accounting, legal obligations, much more onerous than they ever were in my time. And and tortuous is more to the point, not so much the onerous nature, but the tortuous nature of them. The fact that there isn't a lawyer out there that you can have as your pet lawyer, because the law is so huge, that it requires lots of different specializations. So you end up having to go to these ridiculously oversized firms of lawyers where six people are in the meeting with you now, each one of them charging you a rate. It's just not affordable. And the same thing goes for banks. I used to be able to, as back in those days, of course, I could walk into a bank, ask to see the bank manager, and it was a negotiation. It was a sales opportunity, me to sell myself to that bank manager and try to get somebody bought in to be my source of finance. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it just, it's gone completely, except for private banks 
where you need a lot of money to even get their attention. Um, now there is nobody of that ilk. So I think that's very much why the model has changed to, if I call it the venture capital model, it's not quite right. Let's call it the startup model where friends and family okay. and wealthy individuals are the initial source of funds and, and several rounds of raises take place before a venture capitalist comes along. And the thing is suddenly it, it's, it's a concept, it's the Amazon concept, which every kid today thinks is the way to start a business and can work, does work for some, but it's, it's, it's a very, very different way. It's, it's a finance driven model of how to create a business, which is a bit of a shame when businesses used to be created out of pure passion and skill and energy. Necessity. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so where do you see the root of that problematic change, um, making it more difficult for young people to start a larger operation or a medium operation, if even? I, I, is it a government? Is it the size of government, or or is it the financialization of our world? Or I, I, I think, without wishing to sound conspiratorial, it feels to me like it is part of a symptom of the collapse of Western civilization. Literally, I, I, it sounds grandiose, I know. The problem is... It doesn't sound conspiratorial, though. Good. It, I mean, and, even, and, and I do have to say, I mean, uh, I know on most podcasts and most mediums, um, people are very tight-lipped. Uh, you really don't have to... Have to have to be tight-lipped uh, on this on this podcast because um i believe ultimately in ultimate truth and finding of truth and for that we need to be able to be straightforward and anything that is not let's say blatantly discriminatory or uh is i mean it's or everything goes um, everything so good yeah because uh, again it's one of those things I, I talked earlier about an excess of confidence and you, you can't do the sorts of things that I've always done without having that excess of confidence. And in, in, in having it, it will automatically seem like everything I'm saying, I'm saying as if it's incontrovertible truth and I'm not willing to listen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. it, it's a forceful opinion. But that's actually just my way because I, I learned a long time ago, if I dither in a conversation, nothing ever takes place. If I can lay down a challenge, I might encourage somebody to come out and contradict me because I want to learn if there is something else. Yeah. I find yeah. that method has worked better for me than the team building, warm and cuddly committee type environment, which I find mm -hmm. tedious. So, so when I say things, I say them as if they're just God given truths handed down. And I mean it like that until somebody shows me another point of view and I'm, then I'm willing to listen because nobody has the whole truth on anything. So exactly. So where does this come from? There was a guy, I should remember his name, 1953, the year I was born, he wrote the book called The Managerial Revolution. And it's... It's not a flattering portrait of management. And I 
I think it was incredibly prescient and I think it describes virtually everything that we suffer from today. So within commerce, there are no longer any entrepreneurs. Let's put Elon Musk to one side. Elon Musk is the archetypal entrepreneur. I worship the ground he walks on. Yeah, agreed. Him aside, the vast bulk of the people running the companies that we think of today as commerce are managerial types. None of them have skin in the game. They may have been given a large chunk of skin in the game, but they didn't earn it. They didn't put it in. They didn't take risks. <clears throat> and they don't take risks today. And I've had too many experiences of sitting around tables of large operations. Will those tables be real or virtual? And not being able to find a single person around that table who is willing to stake a reputation on anything. Not even to have their name <clears throat> to a decision in case it comes back the wrong way. And that's, okay. that's where we're at. So we end up needing six people to do any job, followed by a phalanx of 12 lawyers and the accountants who now come in dozens as well. And then I hear governments whinging about the lack of productivity. And you think, do you really not see the join here? I used to have a yeah. bloke digging a hole in the ground. And now I've got a bloke digging the hole in the ground and layers and layers of management without whom he could still dig the hole in the ground. Even yeah. if he dug it in the wrong place, he could go and dig the right one and still cost a great deal less money and use up a great deal less resource. And that's where we're at. The legal side of things has become insane. The regulatory side is insane. And I, I think we could go, we could go back to a core principle. That lovely one of do no harm. Is it Apple's um, byline? I think it is. Uh, it's also obviously the Hippocratic Oath. But the that for me as a principle in law solves all problems it would solve the global financial crisis it would solve the bernie madoff it would solve all of those catastrophes that take place regardless of the layer upon layer upon layer of regulatory authority that is put there for the precise purpose of stopping those things happening but they don't mm -hmm. You throw an obstacle in the way of an entrepreneur, a Bernie Madoff, and he will make it his life's work to find a way around that obstacle. The issue has yeah. to be really, really yeah. simple. If we have do not harm, do no harm as the the tenant within, tenant within the, the law, then I don't care how you do that harm. If you defraud somebody, if you steal from somebody, if you hit them over the head, it's guilty. And life becomes so much simpler. And then we don't need a thousand lawyers for the job. Do you think do you think it's even possible to um, distill the legal system of like a grand society like ours uh, down to such simple um, laws or messages um, within a complex society like that? Or do you... Because I... I would argue that all those complex laws and all that complex bureaucracy is a symptom of um, a 
big complex society that we live in anyway or is there let's say a hope that we can rebuild a new society on libertarian principles james i think the, like the one that you're espousing. i think the philosophy you just espoused which i i well understand and i i, I completely get how that line is sold the problem is it's the complexity that breeds that situation which demands additional complexity to maintain the complexity of the situation when real in real terms it is very simple when we have such complex laws we have armies forget thousands armies of lawyers whose whose job it is to find a way around it and therefore we have armies of mm. politicians who spend their days trying to dream up new laws we would hope uh, i emphasize this we would hope they're trying to dream up new laws to plug those loopholes i i'm nowhere near being convinced that that's what they actually are doing the trouble is when you define everything so narrowly and and we have tens of thousands of these laws on our statute books there is no lawyer yeah. on planet earth that understands them all there is certainly no business person that can walk through life without infringing some of them they create a situation where those with nefarious intent can drive a coach and horses through the regulations especially if they can afford to pay the lawyers to make sure they can do so whilst walking on water and you, that's mm -hmm. that's how you get a global financial crisis it's how you get a bernie madoff or any other corrupt practice that you can think of because there is so much money floating in this system it's all down to can i buy the lawyers to solve this problem for me or can i buy the regulators to solve this problem for me yeah we have a simple principle and we have I would stop training lawyers and I would start training judges and I would have them going through philosophy and ethics as being their main mainstay of their education because I think most of us recognize right from wrong I think most of us are able to make allowances for circumstance not all of us can make a good judgment call and that's critical in this situation but i would be happy not most of us can't i agree and and prejudice like, comes in. Year. yes exactly i agree entirely and sent me a really bad judgment call. but here's the interesting thing james our salvation from this last three years is going to be through the courts it isn't going to come from any parliament anywhere it's only going to be or a revolution or anything yes you well yeah that's the yeah. other option yeah. i'm not averse to that one either right now um but i if you told me that the law changes tomorrow we're tearing up the entire statute book and the rule now is do no harm i would feel like a huge weight had been lifted off me and i would be willing to accept justice in every sphere of my life because 
I would contend that nothing I do causes harm and certainly not consciously. So, you know, already I'm starting to complicate the law. Maybe there's a conscious do no harm and an unconscious do no harm. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah, I agree. It's complicated. I get it. And then it starts more and more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's a bit like um, religion managed to exist, well, the Christian religion at least, for for 2,000 years on the back of 10 laws. I mean, they're not quite what I would choose, but they're close. Um, Yeah. And I do think that we can, we we could recreate a situation um, where we could make life a, a, a million times probably simpler. Of course, we have a problem with that, don't we? Because every politician, every wealthy person, every wealthy corporation and every lawyer would be dead set against it. So we'd be taking on the entire elite in trying to change that because it's not in their interest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so before we move on to the next topic, um, I would like to come back to my original question and how the in, in entrepreneurial environment has changed for young people now. So are you able to distill some advice down to a couple of bullet points for my ilk um, who want to pursue an entrepreneurial life and at some point sit where you're sitting right now yeah number one is find yourself somebody much more boring who will keep you on the straight and narrow in terms of the administrative stuff freeing you up to go off and do the exciting entrepreneurial really important okay Uh, in my experience you know that whole thing about most businesses fail in the first 12, 18, 24 months of their life? Generally speaking, it's all for a reason because there isn't anybody from day one holding tight of the purse strings and the administrative routines that have to be developed. And so suddenly success comes along, money's coming through the door, it's also flowing out of the door, and it's a year or 18 months or two years before that becomes a major problem. So start the way you want to go on and have that foundation in place. Secondly, make sure you've done that technical thing we talked about. You've almost always got somebody else involved with you. Get the legal sorted, get the prenup in place. Yeah, get the prenup in place, okay. And then spend as much time as you can in the company of other people, successful people who are willing to share their advice. You can do that in so many ways these days. YouTube is full to the brim of all sorts of inspirational stuff. You can go to networking events. There are networking events everywhere these days. Pick and choose, Mm -hmm. find people that you respect, look at the things that they recommend, where they go, whose advice they take. Get that sense of who you're going to listen to can't just follow blindly what one person says but who are you going to take for influence and i that's important stuff it's it's the groundwork and getting a clear head and then finally once you put all those bits and pieces in place 
essentially what you're aiming to come out the other side with is a plan. I don't care what the plan is. You just need to have one and you need to start to follow it and you need to adapt it with every circumstance you encounter. But not having a plan, what's that line? Having having no plan is planning to fail, I think, something along those lines. Um, yeah. And the other one is no plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. It's, you know, these are such old established truths, but they tend to be overlooked in the enthusiasm of the early days. So you need a plan. You also need to be willing to adapt that plan at the drop of a hat, not not review a month or three months or six months down the line. Literally, you've got yeah. to turn six but a continuous, continuous update. Yep. Okay. okay, so would those be the five? Basically, find a paper pusher. Yep. Find an ad administrator and kind of financial, um, how would you say, someone who's responsible for the purse? Yep. And then um, three, get a prenup in place for your partnerships. Mm -hmm. Four, surround yourself with mentorship. Yep. And then five, have a plan slash vision and, and continuously follow up on it. Yes. Yeah. I've never okay. thought of setting it out in terms of a, a, a five-step approach. But yes, now you come to tease that out of me. It does. For me, it does come down to those five things. This all, of course, presupposes that you've started the whole exercise with a, an exciting idea that you want to bring to fruition. Of course. The idea comes first. Usually. Of course. But yes, that, that works for me. Yeah. I, there's an interesting thing there in terms of I said something earlier on about not working with your partner. Um, it has to be said, and I know this doesn't fly well in this modern day and age, but in my experience... Most women are far more level-headed about maintaining expenses and balancing the books. Now, that's never going to be 100% truism. And I'm trying of course not. not to be genderist or, or sexist, but it has been my lifelong experience. And so if you already have a partner in that way, a, a personal life partner, then that is an area of the business where they could very well help if they have a very keen sense of managing money because it doesn't come yeah. into conflict too much and it's a good challenge. Yeah, that would be the number two position that you were talking about, find an administrator and someone who takes care of the purse. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, and at that, you said, who keeps a good like look on the purse the whole time. A very anxious look and that i mean you said it yourself um that's what i've heard mostly about let's say the female psyche in business as well and i don't think it sounds sexist at all it's just or anything i think certain facts just have to be said and that doesn't mean that there aren't great female entrepreneurs it just means that there's a tendency for one sex and a tendency for the other sex and i mean that's I completely agree. And That's, I've come across plenty of spendthrift women in my life as well. So it's, it's not to say that yeah. all women are great at uh, balancing the books. Um, but it's, yeah. they definitely have a keen sense in that direction as a generality. And I think from uh, 
our point of view as as men, young men, with a very boyish side to our tendency, we tend to be much more optimistic and much more risk-taking, and we will go out and spend money when perhaps we shouldn't. So I think it's a good... Of course. And and that's where I don't feel upset about being accused of being sexist, because what I'm proposing is that bringing these two together, they both bring something to the party, and it all works out better in everybody's interest at the end of the day. Yeah, the concept of yin and yang, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. well, now we'll, we'll move on to the next topic. I've literally, do you know that those one and a half hours were uh, the product of my intro? Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay. So I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to get better it down and I guess we probably will do another episode if you'd be up for it. Sure. Um, I'd love to move on to the next topic. Um, and we were talking about like uh, about rules for politicians earlier on, and I'm not sure, have you ever heard of Graham Hancock? No, I'm not sure I have. Oh, you would love him. He's a, um, by the archae- archaeological um, establishment, he's called a pseudoscientist. Okay. But he has written multiple, on ancient civilizations he's just come out with a netflix documentary which has been heavily criticized by mainstream science it's called ancient apocalypse it's basically about um the fall of a previous civilization and um and anyway graham hancock's life has basically gone into this research um, and not just into the research of ancient civilizations but how they might have organized and um and how psychedelic substances played a massive role in 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 governance of these ancient societies and um, his proposal for government was that anyone who wants to be an elected leader has to go through at least 10 to 15 psychedelic mushroom trips and five ayahuasca trips (laughs) and i I, i'm a big i'm a big fan of that but um that that was basically his solution to all our political problems and that brings me as a little segue to the whole topic of mushrooms um which is not in the way our listeners would think now but which is um how i basically came across you the first time when my father sent me a link to your blog called what now doc um and the specific essay which i would highly encourage every one of our listeners uh, to read it was called March me and my magic mushrooms. And it, it's a piece that um, I found very exciting to read about because of, let's say the new opportunities that would come from that. But it also frustrated me towards the establishment that we have now in terms of our public health. So would you care to share your, your journey with our listeners? Um, who obviously have no clue what's coming now. Um, yeah. I'd love for them to hear that story. Okay, with pleasure. Um, and and interestingly, it's a topic that's absorbing more and more of my time at the moment in a, in a good way. Um, yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll cut to the end and then I'll come back to the beginning. According to a conversation I had with 
my professor of oncology or oncological hematology uh, on Monday, two days ago. Um, the results that I've achieved using turkey tail mushrooms are quote unquote amazing. Um, quote, this has never Wonderful. happened before, unquote. And uh, he plans on writing a paper on it. Uh, and he literally said to me, Robin, this could well be a permanent cure. This is for a terminal condition for which there is no known cure. So, yeah, I'm quite excited. So this all started in 2012. Um, I, I'd been very conscious of the fact one of my great heroes in life, Christopher Hitchens, had died the previous year of esophageal cancer. And uh, Christopher was incredibly brave. And unlike most people, because there's always been this tendency not to talk about these things, Christopher documented, diarised, I think probably better, um, his experiences as he was going through the process of what turned out to be dying. Um, yeah. And how did he get his esophageal cancer? Probably through smoking for most of his life and through drinking. Those two things are the likely causes of most esophageal cancer. It's also one of those which is most fatal because it's usually diagnosed very late. So I was finding myself waking during the night and coughing. And I, come the morning, I would forget. And when, if I did remember, I had missed the 8.30 a.m. deadline to phone the GP to make an appointment. And life was busy, ah. running a business, a global business at that stage. Um, and I just kept pushing it away until eventually, well after Christopher died, um, I finally, everything sort of came together where I remembered that every night I was having this nocturnal cough. I had time to deal with it. And it was that little slot at 8.30 a.m. where I could actually call the doctor. So I made an appointment. I went along to see her. Um, never seen a woman in my life before and said, uh, I think I have esophageal cancer. And she asked me, of course, patients walk in self-diagnosing all the time, don't they? Um, she asked me what my symptoms were. She said, well, you could be right, but I think it's much more likely lung cancer. So I'm going to send you for an x-ray, which she did. And then uh, x-ray was on the Wednesday, six o'clock on Friday night. She rings and she delivers the bad news in a very bad way as it happens and very bad timing six o'clock on a friday evening when i can do absolutely nothing about it like talking to anybody and um, that i have a lesion on my right lung um and only anybody that's had any involvement with cancer understands that the word lesion means tumor why they use it i've no mm -hmm. idea so short story i had some fabulous help oncologists and a team of a radiotherapy team that dealt with me, brilliant surgeon. They excised the upper right lobe of my lungs. Um, it was pretty much a non-event, beautifully done. It sent my body into a complete 
tis for about a year with all sorts of other things suddenly manifesting that had nothing to do with it. Oh, and by the way, the issue was I've been smoking for 50 years. They told me when I was a kid, if you do that, it'll give you lung cancer. You know, hey, I'm a risk taker. So yeah. it's going to be me, is it? It'll be somebody else. <clears throat> and the boring realization that actually they were right and I'd done this to myself was quite, um, what's the word I want? Humbling. So then yeah, everything's good. I've got through a lung cancer operation. I'm alive. I'm, I'm celebrating literally every day I have on the earth. I'm actually much happier, oddly. And almost a year to the day, I started getting, just as I had had the suspicion that I might have esophageal cancer, it's not, doesn't cross most people's mind, I had the suspicion that I might have something either esophageal or further. <coughs> and I managed to convince my radiotherapy team manager to include my head. <coughs> Pardon. <coughs> Pardon me. To include my head in my next scan. And there's an odd thing that nobody ever tells you, even with really good oncologists, but most lung cancer patients go on, if I say most, that's wrong, 25% of lung cancer patients go on to develop a metastasis in the brain. So you end mm -hmm. up effectively a cancer in the brain, but it's actually lung cancer. <clears throat> so I had my scan. I, I, an hour later, I walked into the oncologist's office. We greeted as usual, lovely, lovely man called Conrad Lewinsky. And I said, Conrad, you know, I only accept good news, don't you? He said, yes, Robin, I do. Well, I've got some different news for you. Take a look at this. And he turned his computer screen around and showed me an image of my skull. And dead bang center in my skull was this 25 centimeter, uh, sorry, millimeter sphere floating in just clear space because it's just fluid in there. And this tumor was just sitting there in a lovely, warm, snug, comfy environment with nothing giving it any trouble. One stray cell from my lung cancer tumor had managed to get there. And that was 10 times more frightening than having lung cancer because I instantly pictured I don't know if you've come across Henry Marsh, an absolutely brilliant, in fact, I think he wrote a book called Do No Harm. Um, a brilliant neurosurgeon. He's, he's amazing, Henry Marsh. He's retired now. I don't think he's died, thankfully. Um, but he loved delving in people's grey matter. <clears throat> and the thought of somebody doing that it is much more frightening than lungs. I mean, what are we if we're not our brain? And the idea of hands delving in, in, in brain tissue in order to try and excise a tumour was, was quite terrifying. So I went to three separate neurologists because this one I wasn't taking any chances with. And the first two were both dead keen to cut over my skull and dive in with both hands and see what they could see because 
to them, this is just manna from heaven. It's what they love to do. I don't mean this in any nefarious way at all. It's their skill. It's their life. It's everything to them. And the more of these things they get to do, the more they learn. And then I discovered there was a thing from the third fella called Gamma Knife. And the Gamma Knife was invented by this amazing fella, Swiss, Swedish guy, called Lars Lexell, operating out of the Karolinska Institute. It's actually been around for quite a while, but there are literally only two machines in this country. There certainly were then in 2013. And they basically take an enhanced MRI of your skull so they can map every contour of the tumor. They program the gamma knife machine with those contours. They literally bolt a frame with a Phillips screwdriver and screws to your skull to keep it safe. And then they do give you local anesthetic for that, I should say, just before I frighten anybody, but it's still terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And then the gamma knife machine sends 200 rays of low dose radiation so that they all converge onto the contours of the tumor. And the whole point being that because they're low dose, as they're scything through your brain cells, they're not leaving carnage in their wake. It's only when they come together that the the sum total of the radiation does the damage to the tumor. Long story short, it worked. Oh, wow. And are you in an x-ray at the same time so it can see, so they can visualize where the tumor exactly is or do they pinpoint it before? They pinpoint it before with an enhanced MRI. Okay. And then the frame is to bolt you into the yeah. machine so that you cannot move your head so that what they've programmed is exactly is accurate. correct. Yeah, you can't move. Okay. Understood. Um, and it's, it's I mean... Okay. It, it, I, I feel like I just walked away completely free. There was, there's no pain. There's no sense apart from having the thing screwed to your head. But there's nothing. And you don't feel the process because it's just radiation. And I walk away. We had a bit of a blip around Christmas time where on a repeat MRI, it seemed to be getting larger. But the intriguing thing with radiation is the sun is the greatest sort of radiation we have. And if you were to go out and lie on a Bondi beach in 40 degrees of sun for too long, you would blister. That's what radiation does to human cells. And so the suspicion was either this thing is still growing or it's blistering. And by virtue of blistering, it has an increased mass. So myself and one of the Swedish professors involved decided Let's leave it till after Christmas. We'll do it again in January and see whether it's still large or has it reduced and no big deal. If it has got bigger, we'll just zap it again. Never had to happen. The next MRI showed it shrinking and then three monthly getting smaller and smaller until eventually it's gone. So now I've got away with lung cancer. I mean, literally got away with it. Got away with a metastasis brain like... On the brain metastasis, <laughs> I had a conversation with one of my current oncologists, just a guy, I go for a PET scan on an annual, annual basis because I, 
I obviously have a bit of a propensity to cancer. Um, and he wants yeah. to do an MRI of my head. And I said, why do you want to do this? Because there's no apparent problem with it. He said, well, Robin, we don't have any patients that are 10 years on from a brain metastasis. And I thought, ooh, it hadn't really sunk in. Okay. That it's such a rarity. Yeah. I did also think, well, hey, you can pay for the MRI then, not me, if, <laughs> if I'm helping your education. But um, so I got away with that. And then along comes my third one. And, and this was much more insipid and insidious. And it lasted about three years before I could figure out what was going on sufficient for me to go to the right person for a diagnosis. Uh, turned out, I suspected from lots and lots and lots of reading that I might have a leukemia. So I go along to a... Which is or hematologist is where you go. And he tested me and, yep, sure enough, I have leukemia. But not only that, of course, I have a rare one called CMML, which is <laughs> myeloid monocytic leukemia. A rare one. Um, the problem being that if something's rare, there's no money spent on it. Uh, Another problem being difficult to do clinical trials because there aren't enough people to make a meaningful clinical trial. Um, there is no cure. Um, I'm technically right now in the watch and wait phase because it goes from being chronic to being acute. And at that point, that's where you start the countdown. Um, and I was, I was a tad peeved, slight digression, because I know we're talking mushrooms ultimately, but slight digression for three years my gp surgery had been taking blood tests off me just routine blood tests and every single one had come back showing my key leukemia markers being above normal range and flagging them up for observation and did i receive a phone call a letter a note anything from my gp and all that time not a thing i had not had, one not one i'd had it for three years it was yeah. developing for three years and the average lifespan post-diagnosis is 24 months. So I thank them for that. But why? Why? Why did you not get one phone call? I have no idea. I wrote. I wrote a fairly angry letter. I tried to be as polite as possible, but I was angry. And yeah, I remember a letter back saying that somebody had tried to phone me on one occasion, um, but somehow or other it hadn't been followed up in three years every like two two to three blood tests a year over that three-year period anyway so i've now got this one and there is no cure and then last last september of 2021 somebody uh, pointed me at a little documentary about a fellow called Paul Stamets, who I now know is kind of one of the world's gurus on mushrooms, um, particularly then. Yeah. And the movie's called Fantastic Fungi. And I actually sat down, I have uh, horticultural apprentices that work with me. And I actually took them to the movies in my, in my hall and sat down 
put the TV on and said, come on, kids, we're going to watch a movie together. And because it is, it beautifully describes something I was already familiar with, the, the networking capabilities of mycelium, the, the main body of a mushroom that lives underground and connects one tree, one plant to another, and allows essentially a yeah. neural network. And in that movie, yeah. he talked about turkey tail, but the real crunch was right at the end of the movie. Uh, he includes a clip that's part of a TED talk, which is on YouTube and introduces his mother, who I think was at the age of about 82 or 83 when she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And her oncologist told her it was pretty much the worst case of stage four breast cancer she'd ever seen. And she recommended that in conjunction with the chemotherapy that she was going to prescribe, that she ought to also take turkey tail mushrooms. Well, it just so happened that being his mother, she knew that he dealt in turkey tail mushrooms, so he supplied them. Within, they had given her six months to live. Within, I can't remember the exact time, but it was less than one year, she was judged to be clear of all cancer in her body throughout. Now, when, when you're in this cancer world, <coughs> a world of its own, you can't help but come across thousands and thousands of anecdotal, I cured myself by fasting, I drank the root of some exotic Amazonian plant. Yeah, these things, who can put any validity to any of these? But with this one, I, I liked the guy. I liked the way he thought um, I liked what he had done in his life. I respected what he was doing. And so I delved further and I found all sorts of articles supporting the concept that Turkey Tower could well have anti-carcinogenic anti properties. And so I thought, well, what's to lose? We take a few mushroom capsules and if it works, how wonderful is that? If it doesn't work, who cares? The thing is, there are no known side effects from it. So for the sake of, relatively speaking, a few clips. But I thought I need to do this right, because I don't want one of those anecdotes that in amongst all sorts of other things, oh, I also chucked in these mushrooms and now I'm cured. It's perfect. So yeah, it, and one of the reasons I waited, I had decided in September that same month to stop taking statins and I didn't want the cessation of the statins to get mixed up with the starting of taking mushrooms. I also wanted a baseline blood test to work from. So I knew that on point A, that those were my blood markers. And on that day, yeah. I would start taking the mushrooms. So in June, nine months later of 22, I had my routine blood test. I got my results. They were the highest they'd ever been. I, I keep a spreadsheet. I know this sounds anal. Back to 2016 of my blood test results. And that day I started taking turkey tail mushrooms. And then five months later in November 22, I 
go for my then delayed three monthly blood test simply because of the mess the NHS is in. I got cancelled three times, I think. And I go in, I have my blood taken. I then go in to see my oncologist, lovely fella, Belarusian guy. And we spend 10 minutes talking about Ukraine and Russia. And that's a whole other story, but he loves to talk about Ukraine. Let's not get into that today. <laughs> no, we won't. Um, and then it was almost a, well, I better look at your bloods then. Um, and he said, okay, so your monocytes are uh, within normal range and your neutrophils, uh, they're in normal range too. And he ran through my four key markers. And, and I think he and I were both in our own way shocked because he didn't elucidate at all. And I didn't ask questions. I, I literally just said, um, Gleb, could you print me a copy of that, please? Because my head is kind of, sorry? My head is, is exploding. I Hang on, I can't possibly have heard yeah. what he said. I need it on paper so I can take it away and check. And and his printer's broken. He said, yeah. well, I would print it, but my printer's broken, but come with me. And we went out and got the secretary to run one off on her printer, and he gave it to me, and we shook hands and said we'd see you in three months' time, and I left. And I was literally in some kind of shock. Did I really hear what he just yeah. said? I sat in the car, and I opened this piece of paper up, and it was just amazing. All of my four markers have been getting ever higher above normal range for four years. And they had all yeah. down, fallen off a cliff, literally fallen off a cliff and were back within normal range. So I came home, I just wanted dying so, to put them into my spreadsheet and I, I plugged them into the spreadsheet because I keep it in color so I could see this expanding red going through the center of the spreadsheet and then suddenly black. It's like, yeah, okay, wow. Happened, I'm thinking, okay, so his printer was broken. Maybe the machine, the blood test machine is broken as well. It's the NHS, who knows? Worse, yeah, of course. <laughs> maybe they got my blood mixed up with somebody else's and they're currently in the process of explaining to this poor bugger that he's now got a terminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I need is a I need a confirmatory blood test. That's the only way to set, settle this. I need another blood test. And then light bulb came on. And I thought I had a blood test at the GP surgery, just the routine annual medical review, the one they never tell me when there's something wrong. <laughs> well, sure enough, yeah. they, they haven't yet remarked on this either. But I go, they've loaded it onto my app online, so I go and check it. And this was taken in October, so a month before this amazing blood test result. And all of the numbers had already plummeted by October. They were still just above normal range, but they were way down. In other words, this was a trend. I'd gone from being really high, four months down the line, they're plummeting, and one more month, and they're back within normal range. So... To, to bring that part of it to a conclusion, I had another blood test in January uh, this year, so two weeks ago, and they've fallen further. All of my markers have now wow. fallen through normal range. 
I am now below normal range on the four key markers <laughs> that determine whether I have CMML, which in itself is a worry of its own kind for me. Um, yeah. But the one thing that is is immutable, I do not have CMML anymore. It is defined by those markers being elevated above normal range. Whatever else I might have now, I definitely haven't got CMML. So my concern is, okay, I, I obviously don't want to keep on doing what I'm doing because how low can it go and what difficulty can that present? So I, yeah. <laughs> where do I go? <laughs> where do I go to ask an expert, um, how should I adjust my mushroom intake to balance my blood <laughs> for leukemia? <laughs> because where is this person that's a specialist in mushroom medicinal use? Oh, and the rarest leukemia on the planet. So yep, you're going to have a hard time finding. Yeah, exactly. So I, I decided well, I have to become that. Say again. Say again, James. I, I was saying you might, you might have to become that person. <laughs> yeah, right. So I decided, well, I've, I've got to play and do some amateur titration here to try to balance the medication level. So after the November blood test, I had added reishi mushroom to my um, daily intake because it's another one that has reputedly beneficial effects for cancer. Um, so I, I immediately stopped taking that just in case that was adding to, adding to the benefit stroke problem. Um, and I cut my turkey tail dose in half. And so for two weeks now, that's where I've, uh, I've been going. I have no symptoms of any kind, no, no feeling that I've done something weird to my blood and I feel odd. No, nope, don't feel any different at all. I've spoken to my um, professor in London, who's the guy I go to when I'm at this sort of important stage and ask for his advice. And he, <laughs> he tells me, I describe what I've done on the titration. He thought that sounded about right. He looked at my numbers because um, I was concerned I might be now sick in a different way. And he said, no, he's not worried at the, the, the levels that I'm at. He's not concerned. So obviously the next thing to do is to have another blood test, blood test in a couple of weeks time and see if my numbers are just edging back up again would be the, the perfect solution. But he went on to say that the only other time in his experience that something like this has happened, he had a patient with a slightly different version of leukemia um, but equally an incurable one. There aren't many leukemias that are curable. Um, and he had got some treatment in Hong Kong and he couldn't remember exactly what it was. That is the patient. Um, and yeah. my professor had tried to go back to find out what it was, but one way or another, they couldn't get the information. But he said, the thing to note is that that patient is now completely cured. So whatever he did, and, and the Chinese are quite into prescribing mushrooms, all sorts of things, yeah. um, but whatever yeah. he did, it is possible, at least, 
to say that you can take something or other that can end up being a permanent cure for the disease. And he believes that I'm in that situation, that I am now cured yeah. of my cancer. Hi everyone. Unfortunately, our software cut off the audio recording beyond this point and we lost a good 45 minutes, which is a bummer, but I'm also so grateful for the conversation we've already had and I am very sure that I will be getting Robin on in the future again to extract some more wisdom from him in other topics as well. To all you, I'm so grateful for you listening this far and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can follow Robin on Twitter at WhatNowDoc and on his website at WhatNowDoc.com. He continuously writes pieces on different topics on there and I follow uh, his writing a lot and enjoy it very much. And for all you that want to continue following me, I'm on Twitter now on the Generational Knowledge Podcast and I look forward to having you here again soon with the next interview and follow me on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a blessed day, evening or night.